This is the Power of Genetics podcast, the podcast designed to help visionary practitioners build a more successful practice, transform more lives, and lead their patients into the future of personalized health. In each episode, I'll interview successful practitioners and leading thought leaders who will share their insights and expertise to help you prepare your practice for what lies ahead. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Jaffe, and now let's get into today's episode. Today, as my guest on The Power of Genetics, I have Dr. Wendy Warner, who I have not met before today. So a really big welcome to Wendy, and thank you so much for joining me here. Thanks very much for inviting me. I took the time to have a look at a few amazing YouTube videos, which we had a brief chat about, that really gave me some insight into who you are as a practitioner, the kind of journey you've walked, the kind of practitioner you've become over time. But I would really prefer it. It was rather you that shared it with our listeners rather than me, who's only got to know you in the last couple of hours. So perhaps we can start. Let me start off by just saying that what struck me so much is, is starting out as this Obsgani practitioner. And that's a great place to start because, in fact, of course, I'm calling in from South Africa today and we have only one functional integrative Obsgani in the entire country, which for me has always been so devastating because there's so few opportunities and alternatives to send people to when I need to. So maybe we just start off with that. But the beginning of the journey, we can take it from there. Okay. Um, yes, I did the conventional medical school residency in OBGYN and spent 14 years in a conventional OBGYN practice. Very, very early on for my own care, I realized that what they had taught me was pretty limited because I had the world's worst PMS. I mean, literally the joke is if I hadn't fixed it, nobody would have worked for me for more than three months. <laughs> and I was taught that I had to take Prozac every day of the month for the three or four days that I was a pain in the neck. And I said, yeah, I don't really want to do that. So I was already interested in learning about botanical medicine because I'm a gardener and I plants speak to me. And I said, sure. Your family kind of regardless, right? This and is my family, that you got from your father also. and your mother. Yes. That's right. My yeah. mom is the one who could remember the Latin name and all of the details. And my dad is the one that could make anything grow. In fact, he used you to became the one who obviously and, could see what to do with those things. Yes. And we'd walk around right? their garden and um, I, I would say, oh, she'd go, oh, well, that's such and such. And I go, yeah. And this is what it's good for. And she'd go, seriously, I thought it was just pretty. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> we made a great team. We made a great team. So I found an herb that worked, but I was brand new to the community. This is the early 1990s. No one in suburban Philadelphia was doing this kind of medicine. And I didn't want people to think that I was some kind of crazy kook. So I kept it to myself for a while. And finally, I felt so guilty because there was a patient who was describing the same exact symptoms that I had just learned how to manage. And I took a deep breath and I whipped out my prescription pad and I said, okay, go to this health food store, ask for the owner, tell her you need this, this, and this take it for three months, call me back. So three months later, she calls me back and she goes, first of all, my husband says, thank you very much. And she also had told a girlfriend and the girlfriend's husband appreciated it. And that's when I realized, well, okay, maybe I'm not going to get run out of town. 
And I was totally self-taught. I mean, there was very little education, like there was almost no CME kind of conferences in the 90s for in the early 90s for conventional physicians. So I learned from professional herbalists. I went to their conferences. I did herbal medicine and energy work primarily. And then I ended up finding the American Holistic Medical Association, which no longer exists. And that was the best thing ever because it was a gathering of my tribe. And it was every year we had a week where all of us who felt very alone in our communities could get together and we would teach each other what we knew because there wasn't a lot back then that was sort of set curriculum anywhere. And so some people that came to the conferences were very well educated and they'd been doing this a long time. And some of them like me were brand new. And over time, some of the leaders of the AHMA decided, well, you know, if this is going to be a thing, if holistic medicine is going to be a thing, because we called it holistic medicine back then, not integrative, mm-hmm. we need to set a bar. So they developed the American Board of Holistic Medicine and came up with a board exam. And so anybody that could pass the exam, at least that told the world we knew, you know, at least this much. Now, you might know a lot more than that, but at least you knew this much. And I think it was the second year that that exam was available that I went to their review course right before the test. And no, I actually, it was the first year that the exam was available. I went to the course because they had a five-day review course. And I remember them saying, if we know that there are people out there who probably are experts and you may know as much as we do. So if you want to get involved, please let us know. And the women's health lecturer that year, I thought didn't do a great job. So of course, being a big mouth, I sent them a note and said, I'd be happy to do this talk for you. One thing led to another. I ended up teaching for them and ended up becoming um, on the board of directors and was the, the president of the board for a couple of years. And then that organization ended up, there was this big merge between the University of Arizona's fellowship program and the ABIHM, which had an exam, and the academic fellowships around the country, they all sort of came together. And so now it's a different board and the board that I was president of no longer exists. But that kind of got me going. I mean, I had been teaching for them for a very long time and it made me feel good because I can only see so many people in a day So I can only impact so many patients in any given day. But if I can teach other physicians how to do this, then they can go home and I have a bigger impact because I'm sort of kind of impacting their people too. And, you know, so I have continued to be an educator because that's where my heart is. And um, I'm currently spending most of my educational time working with the Institute for Functional Medicine And in the spring, I'm going to start teaching for David Winston, who's a very well-known herbalist here on the East Coast. He was one of my teachers, and I'm going to be doing his women's health section for his two-year program. There were so many things. I mean, I'm sure you saw me smiling a lot that that came to mind when you were talking. So a few things that resonate greatly. So the feeling of um, isolation, of Mm. being new in a field. So in the field of nutrigenomics, I was completely isolated. There were like three dietitians in the Northern Hemisphere. I was told it was a career limiting step that was science fiction. 
I wasn't welcome at the at the normal conferences. I wasn't invited to anything. Finding your tribe being so important for me, it was functional medicine, IFM. So I used to go in the early 2000s to the IFM conferences. They were like 50, 60 people in the room. Yeah. Same people every single time talking about the same stuff. There were like 20 journal articles and we read the same ones over and over, you know, and got really excited when a new journal article came up. But I think that's what resonates so much for me. It was about feeling so isolated and, and so lost not having a place to go study. So I didn't have anywhere to go learn, which sadly hasn't changed hugely in the 20 years and having to self-learn. And in fact, I had to cobble a PhD together with different supervisors because I couldn't get a nutrigenomics PhD. So I had to uh, supervisors together to, to make one. So I just, it, it resonates so much. And in fact, it reminds me of um, the podcast I did with Joe Pisano who was talking about what he did at Bastyr, when a field doesn't exist and you know there's a need, and, and it's all driven by impacts. So impacts my absolute favorite word. And you need to build something. You know, How do you have the courage and the vision and the energy to go and build something that doesn't? And you've just described exactly what he described, where you knew there was a need to build a community to build knowledge and education, to build certification and accreditation, and to kind of birth it into the world. So uh, the irony of Obzangani, right? When you go to the conferences we go to, whether it's integrative or functional or holistic, and you see so many new practitioners are coming and have the same passion we do, the same burning desire to change healthcare, to impact patients' lives, what is the kind of advice that you give them when they're starting out in their journey and they're trying to imagine how they're going to find a tribe, impact, build something that doesn't exist? What, what would you tell them? This is what I have literally said to people. First of all, pick one thing. Because what they will always do is they'll get so excited because they want to do, well, if I'm at a functional medicine conference, it's a little easier because that's sort of just its own thing. Yeah. But when I used to do these conferences for the ABIHM, we'd be talking about acupuncture and Ayurveda and massage mm -hmm. and body work and all of these other things and, and botanical medicine in more detail and energy work. And they'd go, I want to do this and I want to do this and I want to do this. And I'd go, no, pick one thing mm -hmm. and get to know it really well. And then find the people in your community that you can refer to. And that means you're going to have to learn. And I'm talking to medical doctors usually. And they'd have to say, you need to go out and learn in the community who your resources are, you know, because you're not going to be a body worker and an herbalist and a Chinese medicine doc and an Ayurvedic practitioner. But they all want to do that. And even in functional medicine, when they have a bit more narrow focus, at those conferences, if they are currently working in a conventional model, I think that it's really tough. I mean, it is possible to do functional medicine in a conventional setting. I don't. I, my practice is fee-for-service because I want to be able to spend the time that I do with a patient. I have colleagues who do it in, you know, they'll do a new patient intake in half an hour. I have no idea how they do that. No, not do I. I have no idea, but the biggest challenge I think for new folks is how do you manage to take this thinking and put it into your practice? Because I was actually already using this thinking and using this way of looking at patients 
when I was still in my conventional practice. You know, I had a 15 minute annual visit with somebody, but I could, instead of think, oh, you know, her periods are irregular, let me put her on the pill. I could real quick in like a sentence or two say, talk to me about your stress, talk to me about your eating habits. Are you interested in taking some herbs? And so you can still use the thinking, even if you can't do the whole big workup. Of course, that's hard to do if you're brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're in someone else's practice and you're having to follow the protocols. So that's, but it's almost like, you know, getting the t-shirt, you know, it's a time that's got to be done. So it brings to mind Patrick Hannaway, who I interviewed a few days ago. And he was in, Patrick's got a brilliant sense of humor. And he said that when he was at university doing medicine, he realized very early on, like you, that there was a whole other world out there and that he needed to be able to study those other things to be the kind of doctor that he needed to be. So he made the decision that he would do just enough work at university to pass his medical degree. The only doctor who's ever said this to me is Patrick Hannaway, just enough to pass And then he would use all that extra energy and time to study Chinese medicine and acupuncture and herbs and all the other things that he knew he needed to be the kind of practitioner. So I thought that that was also quite an extraordinarily great attitude, actually. Yes. And of course, only someone as brilliant as Patrick, who is a dear friend of mine, can get away with that. I would not have been able to do that in medical school because I was scratching to make my way through. I could have used all my time just to get to be able exactly. to get through, exactly. just to be able to get through. But I did, and, and but the other thing I, I've heard you said in your videos is, and, and this is something I strongly believe, is that there's no shortcut. Mm. You know, you've got to do the work, and I think you've spoken about this. You know that none of us arrive where we are out of university, and that's what I'm saying. It's even that 15 minutes where you're starting out. It, you've got to get the t-shirt. You've got to do the work. And it's a journey and you actually don't know exactly what that journey is going to be. And that's why I love your idea of pick one. Just start somewhere and immerse yourself, do the work, learn. And, and the other thing always, and, and I don't know if you've had this experience, is find mentors. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you had that in your experience. Um, not in OBGYN, but in functional medicine and holistic medicine in general, yes. I was very fortunate to get to work with Primarily the people that were on the board of ABIHM initially, I learned so much from them. People like Patrick, actually, who I've known for 20 years. And it was interesting because there was no one who was doing OBGYN specifically that could be my mentor. And I have to point this out to people all the time. You would think of all specialties, gynecologists would understand how to balance hormones. And we don't, we are not, they don't even pretend to treat us, to teach us how to do that. It is very simple in conventional practice. If someone has an irregular period and she doesn't want to be pregnant, you put her on the pill or some hormonal contraception. And if that doesn't work, you do surgery. I mean, and that's really about as simple as it is. And when it comes to menopause, they've got the totally the wrong idea. Oh dear. So why? So so we also, so Sarah Gottfried's also a good friend of mine and she was also on the podcast. And and as I mentioned, there's one dining obs in South Africa in the whole country who's functionally based and who I send people to, and unfortunately lives in a very small town, very far away. Pretty much every other gynae obs that I have been exposed to 
as I walk in, they're either talking to me about the contraceptive pill or HRT with no concern for not even a question about family history, breast cancer history, my lifestyle, anything. So everything that I've learned around hormones and menopause has been from people like, like yourself, like Sarah, from IFM, from the research. Why do you think that's the one area of all the specialities where we've almost seen the least adoption, the least uptake, the most resistance? I think about this all the time, and I am not entirely sure what the situation is. I don't know if it's because the pharmaceutical industry has such a strong hold on the medical education of gynecologists. That's very possible. I mean, I know that my first OBGYN textbook was given to me by a pharmaceutical rep. It's the irony. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. And because, you know, they took really good care of us back in those days. That was back when, you know, they could do. But there were less parties. rules, right? Risk there, were, there were like no they rules. Could give you, they could yeah, give you no stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but no, it's it's really interesting. And I don't know if it's because, well, I mean, OBGYN is sort of an interesting specialty because on the one hand, you're a surgeon. And on the other hand, you're also like a family doc. And then you've got this whole OB thing. And so you have such a wide range of things you need to be able to do that I don't think they expect you to take the time to learn all the little details. They give you quick little answers. Mm. And we used to joke in my training, like pharmacology is, was not my favorite subject at all. And I used to joke and I'd say, well, the good news is as a gynecologist, I only need to know a handful of drugs. About 10 drugs. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just need a few. Yeah. <laughs> It'll yeah. fix pretty much everything. You know, and if in doubt, I can be a surgeon and go fix the problem surgically. They only the people that go through the program training in um, conventional OBGYN who realize how limited it is are the people who go looking for another answer. I mean, my former business partners are still in the community and they find it hysterical what I'm doing. I mean, they're really? glad I'm they're glad I'm doing well, but they think it's a little weird. Until of course, my my oldest business partner, we went to residency together. When his mother got breast cancer, who did he, he con call? He contacted you. me for some information. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Because he had yeah. he's kept saying, I still, you know, she needs to have surgery. Surely there's other things we can do. And can we find out why this happened? Because I have two sisters and, you know. Mm. And so they turn to you. Uh, but that's, that's what pain point, yeah. That's yeah. a pain point. It's that pain point. It's that turn. So there's two things that come to mind that I want to ask you about. So the first is I haven't had the experience of understanding what you refer to when you talk about the history of the holistic medicine movement, which you said is no longer and has now become part of integrative. Can you tell me a little bit more? Because coming very much from the functional medicine and only coming into kind of integrative in the last couple of years and not being a Native American, and you know what I mean by that, born in yeah. the US, <laughs> yeah. I don't necessarily always understand. It. And one of the things I'd love to understand, and I love on your website, you talk about yourself as functional integrative, not functional or integrative, but functional integrative, but you also talk about holistic quite a lot. Can you just give me a feeling for what that means to you? So, well, once upon a time, and fortunately no one much uses this term anymore. Remember when they used to call it alternative and complementary? Oh gosh, yes. Medicine? Oh yes. 
that offended me horrendously, even at the time. And fortunately, nobody uses those terms anymore because it's neither alternative nor complimentary. Holistic, in my mind, is sort of a way of envisioning your patient and seeing them as a whole person. And it's interesting because one of my colleagues who comes to my practice is a very conventional family physician who happens to be one of the best osteopathic manipulators I have ever met. He teaches students in residence. He's a very holistic person. He sees his patients holistically, even though when he's in his own office, he's doing straight family medicine from a conventional standpoint, but he sees the patient differently. Now, integrative can be, unfortunately, simply a different set of tools from conventional medicine. It does not necessarily mean you're thinking any differently. I know a lot of integrative practitioners who still are sort of thinking in boxes as opposed to seeing the person holistically. Okay. But they use different tools. And, and the tool would be acupuncture. Or, acupuncture or, okay. or- Okay, I just wanna make sure I understand what you mean by that, okay. Yeah. And so sometimes practitioners are both holistic and integrative and sometimes not. And then functional medicine is sort of a, a sidebar. It's a way of thinking and it has totally changed how we practice medicine. And I think every single healthcare practitioner on the face of the planet needs to be exposed to how to think from a functional medicine standpoint, because it just makes sense. I mean, I remember in medical school, ugh, the things that like, flitted through my head and then I put them aside because I had a test to take. They teach us anatomy. They teach us normal physiology. They teach us pathophysiology. Okay, that all made sense. And then we got to pharmacology and they would teach us how these drugs worked for a given pathology. And I go, wait a second, that's got nothing to do with the underlying pathology. So why are we using this drug? And it would cross my mind and a little voice would go, shut up, you have a test to study for. And so I didn't yeah. really, at the time, I didn't really pursue it. So functional medicine is about looking at processes. Now, functional medicine doesn't spend a lot of time because it's kind of outside their purview, getting people used to using other techniques and getting to know other right. practitioners like acupuncturists and energy workers and things like that. It's like, you know, I'm an educator for them, so I don't want to say no, anything. No, I, I, I understand. But, I'm just saying, absolutely. But you it's, know, not, and it's of, not everything to everyone. I mean, it's not. It's yeah, it's not. And they, and I think that most of the people that have been doing functional medicine the longest are very clear. This is what we do. And when somebody needs acupuncture, we send them to an acupuncturist. Yeah. Or you are yourself an acupuncturist who has also been trained in functional medicine, so that you've got that way of looking at your patient yeah so does that no, that's, be that explanation yeah, that's beautifully sense? said no I okay. think that's extremely well said and I think it's yeah because I am finding that over the years functional medicine practitioners have become much more integrative in the sense of collaborative and multidisciplinary and again I, I think that's something that I heard you talk about a lot about even the way you practice working with such an incredible multidisciplinary team so I, I see that I've always said to people when, unfortunately, I still hear alternative and complimentary, mostly mm -hmm. complimentary, devastating. 
And I always tell them, I said, they think that functional medicine practitioners are like alternative. I was like, actually, they've done everything you've done and times more. Um, they're the yeah. ones who carry on studying. And I always explain, you know, when you come out of university with your degree, you're at foundation phase, you're at the beginning. And what your decisions you make to study after that and to do after that is what will make you a healer, not what you came out of university with. And that's obviously where, you know, whatever you study, whether it's integrative, whether it's holistic, whether it's acupuncture, whether it's functional. So we always talk about, we talk about, um, so I'm, my first degree was as a dietitian. It was an awful degree, absolutely awful. And so I've kept away from traditional dietetics my whole profession. But there's a group called DIFM, Dietitians of Integrative and Functional Medicine, that are a practice group of the, of the Nutrition Academy. And they're brilliant. They really do. And they've done an incredible job over the couple of decades of raising functional nutrition. And we always talk about, can you imagine if there wasn't a need for a, a dietetic practice group in functional nutrition. And in fact, the whole academy yeah. was different. And I think it's the same thing that you're talking about with, with functional medicine, that it shouldn't be something that is different or aside or on the side or extra from anything that, that any MD ever studies or any health practitioner, that it just should be part of what we study when we study, you know, no matter whether you're an ND or a DO or an MD or an RD. Anyway, so that brings it back. All right, kind of getting carried away. So I am going to bring back a little bit to my world and ask just, you know, what has been your experience of genetics has in your very, very varied career? So if you think about it, every single gynecologist needs to be aware of the genetics of estrogen metabolism, if nothing else. If nothing else. Because it is so individual. And as soon as I actually started looking at that and realizing, oh, well, that explains why X didn't work in that one patient. And that's why this didn't work in this other patient. And so that means in addition to actually remembering the steroid hormone pathway, yeah. you have to actually remember all the different genes involved and all the different you know, enzymes and know how to work with them. This is so basic for what I do every day. And I often have patients, you were talking about how, you know, those of us who do this kind of work, we have to keep learning and we have to keep looking at the literature and we have to keep moving forward. And in, unfortunately in conventional medicine, that's not really true. I mean, you do what you have to do to keep your CMEs yeah, every year, CMEs. but yeah. you don't really learn anything. And yeah. my patients will often say, how come my other docs don't know this? Or how come they're not talking to me about this? And I'll go, well, they read different literature, you know, or they don't read the literature. And, yeah, I was going to say, um, yeah. And, and people will say, I'm like, I just last week was going through somebody's estrogen pathways with her. She has a recently diagnosed breast cancer and family history of breast cancer. And so we were, in addition to her conventional treatment, we are making a plan for how she's going to proceed and working around her genetic SNPs and encouraging her body to go down a different pathway. And I'm doing my usual spiel because I really do give my patients way too much information. I expect them to hear, listen to a lot of science. And she just sat back and shook her head and said, even my oncologist didn't talk to me about this. And I go, that's okay. You know, I don't know the drugs. He knows the drugs. 
Yeah. I know the genetics. We work together. It's okay. Yeah, we still have a lot of that. So it's interesting because when you talk about kind of Ghani OVS and we talk about genetics, I mean, there's two things that come to mind for me. So the first is, yeah, I mean, the genes have such a high impact on those pathways of how that estrogen, how your progesterone, all your steroid hormones are going to be metabolized. So that's base. I mean, that is almost nutrigenomics 101. And the other one, which I always found amazing, and if you've come across, is that we have so many MDs, GPs, you know, general practitioners who are putting 14 and 50-year-old girls onto the chondral contraceptive pill. And without understanding how they're going to, to manage that, that kind of exogenous estrogen that's going to the body, but also without knowing like factor two, factor five, it just blows my mind. And when we hear about these young girls traveling across the world and having DVTs and having these clots while they're flying and dying, and I'm thinking, there's another one probably been on the pill for four or five years, had absolutely no idea of clotting risk. And that's exactly what happened. And just the random uniform routine use of hormones, exogenous hormones, it just continues day in. And and in the decades, I have seen almost no shift in primary care. Oh, none at all. And that's actually happened in my family. Um, I have a family member who as a young woman was put on birth control pills for really heavy bleeding. She probably has PCOS. And after about five years, got a DVT. And nobody, I mean, we all said, oh, well, that means no more hormones for you ever. But that was sort of set aside. And it wasn't until later. Why? Why? Yeah, nobody, they just said, oh, well, you know, it happens sometimes to some people. And interestingly, fast forward about 10 years, my father had a PE that he should not have survived, but he did, thank goodness. And he was living in another town. And at the time he called me and he said, you know, my hematologist keeps wanting to do these tests because he keeps saying that I didn't have any risk factors. And I said, he's right. You didn't have any risk factors. Let him do the test. And he calls me back later and he goes, oh, I've got two things, probably given all you kids these stuff, these two genes. I'm really sorry. He had factor five Leiden and he had a high homocysteine. Okay. Now this was 15 years ago and it was really expensive to get genetic testing done back then. Yes, it was. And yeah. so I said, not a problem. You're right. We should all get tested. Now that explains my other family members clot because it turns out yeah. she's got factor five Leiden. And then I got my homocysteine done. Now I eat better than most people I know. And I was taking vitamin D. I mean, I was taking B-complex. My homocysteine was elevated. And then I looked at my B-complex. Well, this was a long time ago before I really knew, you know, and what I was, was doing. Methylated. <laughs> it wasn't methylated. Exactly. It wasn't yeah. methylated. And I said, yeah. oh, okay. So I could spend $600 to check my methylation status, or I could just buy some methylated folate and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, three months later, my homocysteine was eight. It was amazing. Just yeah. having taken the correct supplement. The right supplement, what we call targeted supplementation. Exactly. Yeah. But that was back before anybody really talked yeah. about it. But I, in my world, in my dream, I would love every single young girl who's put onto a contraceptive pill to be screened, really. It just, it's so base, foundational. We would save so many. Yeah. And it's not expensive. No. It'd be easy to do. It's not like we're asking no. to spend a ton of money. Yeah. And also, of course, in genetics, it's, it's a once-off test. You know, you do it, it's done. 
and you've got it for life. And when your time comes to plan your hormones, then you've got that information and you make the same decision. So it sounds like we're on the same page when it comes to that. Brilliant. All right. So we'll start because um, we could just carry on, carry on <laughs> down that road. But we'll start. There. I think well, let's finish off with this idea that where do you think genetics is going to land us? Where do you see it in the future in the next couple of decades of medicine in, in, in your world of integrative and holistic and functional medicine? Well, I think the first place that well, OK, this is already happening, even in conventional practice. People who do psychotherapy and med management for um, psych drugs are already aware yeah. that they need to check pharmacogenomics. Yeah. Yeah. And I am always very impressed when people in my community come in having had those tests done. They don't actually understand that some of those same genes are helpful for me when mm. it comes to hormone management. Mm. So I always say, oh, you've had that done? I need a copy. Yeah. So they're already doing that. So I think pharmacogenetics is going to be the first wave because it's actually kind of already started. If I have anything to do with it, we will spend more time talking about genes when it comes to hormones, because I think that, as you say, that could make a huge impact mm. on American women. Nutrigenomics is going to be trickier. I would love to see it being part of everybody's screening, but then you're dealing with the whole food system and people changing how they eat. And so just because you know you have certain genes doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna to wanna to change how you eat because you may not understand the impact. And that's why I work with practitioners. That's why I work with practitioners because the reality is genetics does not sit in isolation. It does not sit out of context. It doesn't exist in its own world. And it's only one piece of information that you or, or an RD or a certified nutritionist is gonna sit with and say, well, I'm going to put this into everything else I understand about my patient and try and help them make sense of the food decisions. And I think, I think that's been the great almost unraveling of the genetic testing industry is this idea that was promoted that genetics is this ultimate knowledge when it's not. It's this incredibly informative, insightful, and useful piece of information that works beautifully when you were put it with everything else that you know about your patient, but by itself. And, and I think that because it became kind of commercially, everyone was kind of jumping on the bandwagon of genetics. It was kind of inflated to this idea that you could do a genetic test and choose all your supplements. You could do a genetic test and be on the right diet. You could do a genetic test and order your meals. And that actually will never be true. That will absolutely never be true because genetics is just piece of context that we have around our patients you know like everything else that we do so I think you know we have to change for me we will be successful when we get both the consumer and practitioners to understand where genetics lives in the context of health and medicine and not this idea that it's it's just another company starting out so that they can make another dollar another dollar as we see so much of that yes unfortunately Anyway, that has been absolutely brilliant. It has been such a pleasure getting to know you and to hear about your work. Now that I have met you, I will be watching even more closely. And I hope one day to meet you in person at one of these conferences. I'll be, when we're back in person, hopefully we'll, we'll get to meet you and come and introduce myself. That'd be great. It was lovely talking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Wendy. And have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Power of Genetics podcast, brought to you by 3x4 Genetics. 
For more episodes, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash podcast. And if you are a licensed health practitioner who would like to apply to join our network of over 1,000 like-minded visionary practitioners, please visit 3x4genetics.com slash apply.